Thank you for listening to audio from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church or our Sunday services, please visit gccugene.org. For those of you guys tuning in at home right now on the live stream, we just also want to welcome you and just say welcome uh, to our service this morning and to the GCC family. If this is the first time you've tuned in via live stream, welcome. As Chris was just saying, it's our aim and it's our mission and it's our hope and goal to make Christ, who already is the hero, the hero by exalting him in all we do. And so I know that there's many that still call GCC their home and family, and you guys are at home uh, watching the service that way, so we want to welcome you as well during this time. And also say that this week we were able to hear from one of our family members, Teresa Smalls, who's been in Kosovo for, it's, it's pushing a year, and so during the greeting time while we were all greeting one another, the people at home got to see a video and an update on how she's doing. And so we'll be posting that uh, this week in our email, and I think social media, so you guys can watch that as well to get an update on how Teresa's doing. So... With that, we're going to dive in, so if you guys would, please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We're going to finish the second part on love this week and exactly what love is. And so turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and we're going to be at verses 8 through 13 this morning. I'm going to read the passage that we're going to be reading this morning, give you guys just a moment to turn there. But... As a reminder of why we're going through this series titled Saints in Society, and specifically why, why did we title it Saints in Society? The reason why is because uh, almost 60 times in the New Testament, the, the word saint is given to those that are in Christ. The saint is a title that's given to Christians. And so it's another name. It actually means holy one or set apart. And so the way that the New Testament authors oftentimes referred to Christians was saints. And so the way that we become a saint isn't actually through works of effort, or if, if we progress enough or do enough, then we actually become holy and set apart, but actually in Christianity, it's, 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 it's different. It's foundationally different. That's our starting point. We start as a saint, as one who's holy and set apart, and we ask, how did we get that? How did we earn that? And we realize we didn't. It was a, it was, it's a title given to us by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So What's going on in Corinth is there's all these cultural influences that are going on inside of the city of Corinth. And they're telling you this is what you need to do and this is how you need to live. And what Paul is saying, this is who you are. And based upon who you are, this is now how you live out of that. And so always our culture is going to press in and say, this is what you should be doing. This is an identity you should take on. And Paul's like, your identity, it's saint. Your identity, set apart. Your identity, holy one. Now, here's how you step into society, not away from it, not avoiding it. Here's how you step into society and live out of this new identity. So that's where we find ourselves now in chapter 13 with what does it look like for the saints to live out and model love to society. Verses 8 through 13, please read with me. These are the words of the Apostle Paul. He says, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up my childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Let's pray. Father, we first confess that we are people that fall short day in and day out. 
second by second, moment by moment throughout our days, we fall short of your standard of what it is to love you, to love one another, and to love our world well. We constantly believe that something other than your love will satisfy us. We constantly run and chase endeavors that we believe are going to provide some sort of ultimate satisfaction and hope to, to, to our lives that your love can't provide. Father, we confess that, that even the faith that we have is so fickle. So we ask this morning that you would encourage us. We ask this morning that you would remind us. We ask this morning that you would teach us through your word, showing us, God, what love is. Not, not how our culture is defined it, but how your word is defined it. I pray that we would take you at your word, that we would trust you, we would trust your word. We would know that the way you've defined love is actually better than the way our culture defines it. Help us to live out of this new identity as saints that are holy, that are set apart into the world. God, not striving to earn something, but, but, but living fully and freely out of the identity that you've given by your grace. In the midst of this season with, 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 with so much um, just emotions flying high around the election and, and, and around all that's going on there, I pray that our trust is never in someone who is seated in the place that leads our nation, but our ultimate trust is, is in you who's seated on the throne, Jesus that there you are placed, you call all the shots, you are in full sovereign control, and you are good. And so more than we place any sort of hope or trust or faith in any sort of man or woman from any spot of leadership, let us be grounded in our faith and trust and hope that is in you. Let, let that provide comfort for the saints that you're in control. And let us model in this season when there's so much animosity in the world what it looks like for the saints to love one another well. We need you, and we pray your spirit would minister and speak to us now in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Last week, we, we looked at a few things, and the uh, main point's going to remain the same, is that we, we as saints take God as, at his word. So the saints take God at his word. That's our main point today. So if you're a note taker, that's it. We're, we're going to stay there, that the saints take God at his word. Last week, we, we looked at this in verses 1 through 3, is that in this life, what we're constantly doing is trying to find something other than God's love to satisfy us. And so we, we become doers. And in some cases, people find themselves being rule breakers. And so you're someone that is constantly breaking all the rules um, through drunkenness, through pornography, through many things to try to satisfy something empty inside of you. Because you're trying to fill up a void and think that there's something in life that if you get it, it will fill you up. And, and Paul quickly reminds the saints that, that all those things are vanity, that if you don't have love, if you don't have an understanding of God's love for you, if you don't understand that you've been reconciled to God and you have the fullness of God's love, that endeavor is always going to come up dry. But then the other side of that, and what he's addressing here, is you guys are using spiritual gifts. You guys are using good things as well to try to fill up this void. And we can use rule breaking, but we can also use rule keeping or good things in the church to try to fill up something inside of us that feels empty, that feels hollow, instead of saying, God, satisfy me in the fullness of your love that I already have. And so Paul is just addressing that, and that's what he's addressing in, in verses 1 through 3, is he's saying we need to take God at his word that ultimately what we need right now is we need the love of God to satisfy us. Not some endeavor, not something else, not good things or bad things. We actually just need to trust and believe it's God's word that's going to satisfy us. What does that help us with, to understand God's love? If we don't have an understanding of God's love, Paul says, I have nothing, I am nothing, I gain nothing. Here's the reality. If we don't understand how much we're loved, it's really difficult for us to love others, and here's why. We naturally wear bulletproof vests. 
And what I mean by that is, is naturally we, we, we guard our hearts. Why? Because we don't want to be rejected. That's the most painful thing for us. And so unless we understand the fullness of God's love and, and His love is, and His approval and His acceptance is what satisfies us, we will keep people at bay. Because by stepping into relationships means that I might get rejected. And I remember when we started to plant this church, people told me this. Many people, they said, just be cautious because just know that everyone's going to walk out on you eventually. Like That's a horrible thing to tell someone. That's what we are told. But the reality is, is that shouldn't matter. If God's love and His approval and His acceptance of me is, is the most important thing, I can step forward because even if you do reject me, I have a love that's going to satisfy me. It's really hard to do that in relationships unless you have a, 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 a hope and a satisfaction in God's love for you. The other thing that, that I said that we do is, is if we don't know this, then what we will do is we will, uh, if we don't understand God's love, we, we will seek endeavors. But one of the things that we'll do is we'll just try to study facts about God's love. And this is the other thing that you can do. Is you can grow in a ton of knowledge. You can spend your time studying theology. And in what you can do is, is somehow just study all the facts about God's love without ever actually experiencing God's love. It would be like me knowing a lot of facts about my wife, Allie, but never actually spending time enjoying the reality of her love. So there are lots of things that we can do instead of just resting in and being satisfied in God's love. So that's what Paul addresses in verses 1 through 3. But then he also, in, in verses 4 through 7 last week, we looked at this, that love is hard, that we're not very good at being loving, and that we project our understanding of love onto God and say, since I'm like this, since I'm a little bit sadistic, since I'm a little bit cynical, since I'm a little bit narcissistic, then surely you must operate like I do. When I'm cold and calculated, when I hold people at bay, surely you must do that. And so we project onto God the way that we function, the way that we think. <clears throat> and then our culture has adopted a love that, that looks like this instead of what God's Word says. Love is passionate. Love is electric. It is flirtatious and stimulating. It gives me butterflies it always feeds me. It always looks after me. It always agrees with me. It doesn't challenge me, but tells me how great I am. Love questions all things, doubts all things, to sit, submits to no one, and in the end looks out for yourself. And then when things get harder, people get hard, make sure that love always walks away. And the reality is, is we'd be like, no, 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 no. But the reality is, is, is our culture's view of love is that, is that love is this just almost purely emotion. And as soon as it gets harder, someone gets hard to love, then we find ourselves pulling back or pulling away. When in the Bible, even if you look at marriages, they were arranged marriages. So love started as a decision and a fierce sacrifice and commitment from day one. It wasn't like you, you grew in love and fell in love. It was like, this is your spouse, this is your spouse, love each other. So it was this like fierce devo uh, devotion and commitment and sacrifice from day one. So it just looks a lot different. What does all this tell us and why is Paul saying all this? If we just read this passage and then say, okay, what I need to do is grow in love, then what we realize is we fall miserably short of being loving. And then... The, the other thing that we can do is say, well, then what we need is we need Jesus to just give us a model that we can mimic. And the, but the reality is, is that Jesus did give us a model. And if we look at the way that Jesus radically loved people, then the model is, and what it tells us is that we have completely missed the mark. Not like we're a little bit off, but we are so unloving and so selfish and so self-centered in our love that we have missed the part, uh, that, that we have missed the mark. So we don't just need a model of love. We don't just need someone to mimic love for us. Because if, if Jesus just came to do that, he would just be like every other sage, every other prophet, every other one that, come to, uh, that has come to walk the earth. The reality is, is that we need a divine substitute. 
If Jesus is the model and, 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 the, and one we are to mimic, then we see, my goodness, I am so far off from, from what the standard of love is. So we don't just need a model, we need a substitute, a sacrifice, a, a divine, infinite, eternal one. And so Jesus didn't primarily come to live, though that's important. But think about this. The apostles spent three years with Jesus, seeing the way that he mimicked love, seeing the way that he modeled it. But did their lives look loving? They, these are the people that are saying, smoke these people, kill these people, can I be seated at your right hand? They saw what love modeled. What they needed is they needed Jesus' death. He constantly was saying, I'm, going, I'm coming to die, I'm coming to die. Communion is a symbolic reminder of Christ's death. What we actually need is the death. We actually need Christ to bear the, ra- the, the rightful justice of God in our place. We need Him to stand where we deserve to stand, and we need Him to pay the punishment that we deserve to pay. He didn't just come to live. He did do that. But He came to die and to offer His life as a substitute. Why? So we could be, here, here's the theological word, so we could be justified. What does that mean? Through faith in Jesus Christ, God looks at us and sees the righteousness of God actually legally belonging to us. So what, what happens is this, is God brings down the gavel and he declares, Christ's righteousness legally belongs to you and your sinfulness legally belongs to him. And so he trades with us. So before God, God looks at us and sees us as though we're justified, just as if we've never sinned, just as if all of Christ's righteousness belongs to us, not partial amounts of it, but every single last bit of the righteousness of Christ legally belongs to you as you sit here today with faith in Jesus Christ. So we don't just need a model of this, what we need to see is that we've fallen miserably short and we need someone to pay the price for the ways that we have fallen short. We need this legal stance before God. But then today what we also need to see is we need to take God at his word and see what it looks like for us to grow in maturity out of this love, which is where we pick up today in verse eight. So read with me. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. Let's just focus on love never ends. This is, love never ends is not some cute sentiment that Paul is saying that we should get as bumper stickers or that we should just put on our refrigerator. Love never ends is something that you should underline, circle, highlight in your Bible. It, 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 it is a massive statement of truth that love never ends. That God's love never ends. It is steadfast. It is constant. It is unwavering. It is unchanging. Our problem is, is when we read love never ends, what we do is we go, where's my love? The problem is when we read our Bibles, we don't first think of God as a triune God. We don't think of His love. We don't think of His character. We instantly think of ourselves. And that's going to be fickle. We need to read this and remember love never ends. God's love never ends. This is, this is massive for Christianity. Because God's love, listen to this, it never had a starting point. For Allah and Islam, His love, the God of, of, of Islam, Allah, His love had a starting point. At one point in time, he, he created creation and then started to love them. That's foundationally different than Christianity because God has been eternally loving God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit forever. There was never a starting point to their love. They have always existed and have always loved one another. For the God of Judaism, there's a starting point to the God of Judaism's love. As soon as he created creation, he started to love them. You see, in, in, in Christianity, God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, they're, they're, they're masters of love. They're not new to this game. There's no starting point. They've been doing it for eternity. And here's the other reality. If your love has a starting point when you turn it on, can we trust that your love won't have, a start, or won't have an ending point when you turn it off? So love starts... But can love end? 
And here's the other thing. If you ask two people this question, would you rather have, uh, in, uh, would you rather have love or power? Most people w- would say power. In Christianity, God's love preceded his power. You see, in, in, in Islam, their God created out of his power and then loved. In Christianity, they, they had this mutual, eternal, infinite love for one another and then out of that created with power. I, I, I hope you guys are, are getting this. I, I think it's, it's, it's massive for us to under, it just What I see from up here is it's like a bunch of bank robbers and just I. So it, like, maybe a nod every now and then or like a wink or something that lets me know you guys are getting it. Th- this, is, this is a big deal because when you read Love Never Ends, we, we have to understand that God's love doesn't have a starting point for those that are in Jesus Christ. Gerhardus Voss, it's a fun name, he's a Dutch theologian. His wife is Catherine Voss who wrote a phenomenal children's Bible. He says this, the best proof that he will never cease to love us is that he never began. The greatest proof that God will never cease to love us is that he never began. What he means is this, is God chose us to love us in eternity past. In other words, our, 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 our salvation and our redemption is something that he's known about for eternity past, which means it's really good news for us. In the mess that we've created with our lives right now, or wherever we're at right now, we, we, we have this tendency to look in and be like, man, if God knew that I was going to look like this or uh, make this sort of impact or do this in my marriage, whatever it is, then maybe he would have been like, eh. God in eternity past, through his love, ha- ha- has loved you and said, I want that man or that woman to be in my family, as Piper would say, which is, which is crazy. He knew us full well. He, he, he knew the... Uh, the the, the state at which we would grow into the likeness of his son, how painfully slow that would be. He, he knew the messes that we would become. He knew all this stuff. And this is what we have, is that his love never ends. His love never ends. There has never been a point when God started to love those that are in Christ because he has chosen to love us in Christ before the foundation of the world. That is incredible. He says, as for prophecies, those will pass away. As for tongues, those, those will cease. We're going to get into prophecy and tongues in, in those uh, next week in chapter 14. He also says the same thing about knowledge. Why? Because whenever Christ returns and whenever we're in the presence of God, we're not going to need prophecy anymore. We're not going to need tongues. We're not going to need knowledge because we will have the fullness of God himself in person. When we're in a perfected state, we don't need to be told about God's love. We experience God's love. We don't need prophecy. The gift of prophecy and the gift of tongues, what Paul's saying, this is going to pass away, but love goes into eternity. is because these gifts are given so that we can know God, we can declare truths about God, and so others can know God, and so we can build one another up. We're not going to need to do that once Christ returns, once we're with him forever. These things will cease. These things will pass away, Paul says, but love never ends. Again, not a cute sentiment. This is something we need to remind ourselves and preach to ourselves day after day. You know that in our Old Testament, the, th- this phrase, the steadfast love of God, appears about 200 times. And about 130 of those are in the Psalms. A lot of those come from David, who's this highly emotional figure. And it seems like he's constantly on this emotional roller coaster. But in your life right now, if maybe things are a mess, if maybe things are falling apart, or may- maybe you're just struggling, you need something that you can cling to that doesn't change. God is immutable, which is a big word that means he never changes. This 2020 has been insane. Our world changes. Day-to-day things change. Our jobs change. So much changes. God's love for you as his child will never change. You need something like that in the midst of pain and what's going on, something you can cling to that doesn't change. Your identity in Christ, that won't change. 
A lot of things change that won't change, which is why I believe that David cries out the steadfast love of God, the, steth- the steadfast love of God, because that's something that he can, he, he can cling to that he knows that doesn't change in the midst of so much turmoil and chaos going on around him. And here's the reality. The more you grow in your Christian faith, the, the more you'll realize it's actually not even you hanging on to those truths, but it's God hanging on to you and, and instilling those truths inside of you that I love you, I'm here with you, I'm not going anywhere, I never walk away. Verse 9 and verse 10. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. Again, he's saying at our max capacity of being awesome at the gift of prophecy or awesome in knowledge, we only have this in a partial way right here in this life. The, the person that, that, that's mastered the, the gift of prophecy or that has the most knowledge has just a partial amount. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. So he goes on to say, when this imperfection or when this partial passes away then the perfection is going to come in other words what he's saying when christ returns in his utter state of perfection he's going to utterly perfect us as he already sees us so we're going to need to spend a a little bit of time unpacking this but martin luther says this he says in this state we live with this reality that we are simul justus et et peccator what does he mean? Which is a big Latin phrase, which means this. We are simultaneously justified before God, but we are also simultaneously sinful. And so last week we talked about what we we're going to look at this week, that we need to take God at his word, and part of his word is this, is that we live in this state and this reality of the partial right now. That, that, that though we are, we are absolutely made perfect in the eyes of God for those of us that have put our faith and trust in Jesus, and that's how God sees us, there's this other sober truth that sin exists in this world. And that we still have a sinful sin nature. To suppress that and act like it doesn't gets really weird, especially for Christians. That's just a reality for us. That's going to be a reality for us until Christ returns. That we're going to battle sin. That we're going to struggle. And I would encourage the saints, struggle and battle well. Keep battling. Keep struggling against sin in your fight for sin. That's a normal thing. But we're going to struggle in this life. Though God sees us perfect, we still have a sinful nature until Christ returns. And what happens? The sinful nature is gone. I long, this is the honest truth, I long for the day that I get to stand next to Allie, my wife, in heaven. I don't believe that our marriage moves into marriage in heaven, but I long to see her in the state that I know that God created her to be in Christ. I long to see her without any shame or guilt or insecurities. I long to see our church family there without any sin nature present, without any just grief and hurt and and cancer and all the illnesses that we have in this world. I long for the day, and the older I get, I long for that day more when we get to be there and the partial passes away and the perfect comes and we are fully made into the likeness of Christ as he had always intended to be. There is no more sin nature. We don't have to hide from anyone. In that state, we, we will love God perfectly because we will understand God's perfect love for us and we don't have to hide, we don't have to cover ourselves, we don't have to pretend anymore. We just get to be and we get to love one another. There's no jealousy, there's no envy, there's none of that. Christ returns and when he turns, we can take him at his word that he's gonna make everything wrong right, including the sinful nature that we still possess. And we, we, we need to know that the enemy comes in now and says, God is disgusted with you. You've done this. There's no way God can love you. That's part of the sinful nature of this world is the enemy and the lies that come in. What we can know and understand this is that we have been made perfect in Christ and he is going to bring that to full completion one day when he returns. Why is this important? 
Because in our culture, in our world right now, again, there are certain things that are highlighted inside of the church and inside of Christian community. And unless the gospel is the thing that is highlighted week after week, and unless the gospel is the thing that is elevated, the person and the work of Jesus, then we will spend our lives trying with our best efforts to place ourselves in a right standing with God. Unless we understand justified, legally declared righteous, now live out of it, we won't actually grow into a loving state. We'll just grow into a very cynical state. Let me share a story with you guys that, that I shared with our gospel community last week, and this is why this is also important. We, amen. We need to understand God's love and the importance of the gospel. And in many churches, as we said last week, what gets highlighted is, is gifts of prophecy, gifts of tongue, and these things that bring a lot of, they can, glory to ourselves instead of to God. When I was about 20 years old, I was not a follower of Jesus until I was 23. So when I was about 20 years old, there was this girl I was interested in, so she invited me to like this week-long revival thing at a very charismatic church, okay? And so I, I liked her, and so I was like, I'll go. So I went. I was also a car salesman at the time, and that comes in later. That was, it, it's, it's important for the story. So I went. And the first night I was there, not a follower of Jesus Christ, nothing about the gospel and about God's love and how we can be reconciled to God. But at the end of the service, this is a question that was asked. How many of you guys have been slain in the spirit and spoken in tongues? Or how many of you guys haven't been slain in the spirit and spoken in tongues? And like an idiot, I was like this. Because I got asked with a few others to come forward <laughs> in front of the entire room of people so that I could be slain in the spirit. Hint, hint, uh, like, a reminder, I'm not, I'm not a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing here. He asked a question. I raised my hand. I know now never to do that again. And so I come forward, and there's about eight of us. This is a true story. And I listen to what happens after he yells and places his, head on, or his hand on each one of their heads. I, I listen to what's going on. And when he gets to me and he screams, I do the same thing. I'm like, I got this. <laughs> I hear what you're doing, I can at least do that. I'm not gonna bring more attention to myself. So I, I did that, right? Next day I sold two cars, awesome. My manager was like, you gotta keep going back, man. So I went, I went, <laughs> I went back every day that week because I was like, something happened. Here's the reality, is it was never, ever, ever preached or made clear to me that this is how you can be right with God. It was never made clear that this is what God's love is and this is what you ultimately need. What was made clear is that you need this gift, this supernatural gift, and you need to be able to do something with the gift. Not what you need is the love of God. You need to understand the love of God and you need to grow in a knowledge and understanding of God's love and of the gospel. This is why this is important because this still happens today. What I needed was a new heart. And I can't do spiritual gifts without a new heart. Verse 11. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, <clears throat> I gave up my childish ways. For those of you guys that are note takers, I, I, want, I want to say this, is that I, I'm going to give seven ways that I see that our, our church culture needs to grow up into the love of God. The only way that I could try to make sense of this is that this is the love that we have that's infinitely and consistently poured out on us. Is if there was a little seedling 
uh, a p- position underwater. It's like there, God's love is this never-ending water uh, fall that just keeps flowing out on the seedling that causes it to grow. If, if the seedling is not growing, then we have to bring in a question, do you actually understand the measure and magnitude of God's love? Do you actually understand grace? Do you actually understand the gospel? But that's not the analogy Paul gives us. He's like, when I was a child, I reasoned like a child. When I was a child, I acted this way. When I was a child, I did these things. Paul probably has in mind his Jewish roots. That at the age of 13, boys go through a bar mitzvah. Bar mitzvah means son of the commandment. So Paul understood at 13, you start to become a son of the commandment. You start to live under the commandment. As a child of God, we're not under God's law. We're under Christ. We're under the love of Christ. But maturity is growing up in that love. And I would say there's seven ways that I see the, the church not growing up in these. I'm going to read through these and then briefly explain them. The first one is how we see the church. That's number one. Growing up into the love of Christ should change how we see the church. Number two, how we self-identify. Growing up in love changes how we see our identity. Number three, how we view sin. How do we view sin? as saints. Number four is we're going to look at the, old, uh, the older brother's view and perspective, and then we're going to, number five, look at the younger brother's view and perspective, where the older brother needs to grow in maturity that's obeying all the rules, the younger brother that's trying to break all the rules. Number six, we need to live outwardly, and number seven is the prosperity gospel. These are the seven ways and, and, and I'm sure we could just do a massive list, but these are seven ways specifically in our culture, in the GCC family, and in the Pacific Northwest that I see the way we need to grow up. If Paul's saying, look, this, this is normal for, for, for babies to nurse, but it's not normal for a grown man to nurse. It's normal for, for teenagers to go through puberty, but if you're doing that at 50, something, something's a little weird or off. I don't know what to say right now, I'm sorry. I just, I went with that one. And it was, okay. <clears throat> yeah, and uh, what Paul is addressing is there's certain ways that children act, there's certain ways that adults act. Are you growing up in love? The first one, how, how do you see the church? Again, I, I will, the GCC, I, GCC will gladly buy a copy of this for anyone that wants it. I would highly encourage you guys to read it. You can probably read it in an hour, maybe two, but it's how do I walk in church? How do you see the church? How do you understand church? The, his premise of the book is, is even praying before you come into church. When you showed up this morning, are you someone that, that sees church as this place that you can step into? Uh, my life is kind of in a mess. If, if God will bless my faithful efforts to show up this morning and provide a little bit of service for me, things will be better. Or do you actually see the church as the family of God and the body of Christ to where if you are dismembered from it and your hand is dismembered that it's floating around there and it actually doesn't serve a purpose until it's connected to the body of Christ? When you show up on Sunday mornings, do you see it as uh, a place like you would book a cruise or book an all-inclusive vacation to where you go, what services does the church provide for me? And if they're not meeting these services and I'm going to move on to the next church, or do you say, that's the family of God that I've been called to serve. How do I show up this morning and look outwardly instead of saying, what is in it for me? How do I pray for others, love others, encourage others, and seek out others? I, I'm telling you, this is going to be a radical shift for us when we grow in a deeper understanding of how we view and see church, not as some thing that's a service that we suck dry, but is actually something we give, give to. There's so much, I want to be gracious here, I've heard this so much, especially in, in the Pacific Northwest, what, what am I getting, who's discipling me, 
Who's doing this for me? I, I need this. I need this. I, I need this. In all reality, what we're supposed to do up and sh- uh, we're supposed to show up and say, how am I loving and serving and encouraging and building up my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? How do you view church? Tony Payne says this. I'm going to read it. He says, the one abiding and ultimate principle that should drive everything about our church gatherings is love. Not love in the sense of I love ice cream or I love playing golf, but love as the uh, constant attitude that seeks the good of other people rather than myself. Love doesn't complain or grumble or stay at home in bed because it couldn't be bothered. Love seeks the good of the other patiently, kindly, truthfully, joyfully, and constantly. I'm, I'm, again, I'm not just trying to hammer at people, but showing up late, there's a lot of things that show our attitude for this. It's, 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 it's a service that can be provided instead of the family God that we give our lives into. The benediction, that's like the gun that goes off so we can get out of here. Right? That's one. Two, how do we self-identify? Do you, do you self-identify as a saint, as a child of God right now? That's the most ultimate true thing about you, or is it that you're Republican or Democrat? And what would your Facebook say that you ultimately seek and find your identity? To grow up in the love of God means to grow up under this, that you are loved by God as a child of God. That is your ultimate identity. That identity actually takes you into eternity. Your political status is not. And how we treat other people right now actually matters. How we engage with people, does it actually show that our greatest passion in this life and in this world is who we have been made in Christ, that we're part of a family and that we get to love one another, or does it actually show that our greatest passion right now is in politics? Growing up in love is self-identifying as a child of God and living out of that identity and loving other people. Three, how do we view sin? The, the moment that you start to grow up in the maturity of God's love is when you stop seeing that your sin is individualistic. What I mean by that is that it only impacts you. I talked to a pastor this week and there was a couple in their churches just going through an affair and this person led their kids' ministry. And so this this, this act and this going through this didn't just impact them or their marriage, it actually impacted the church because now they're no longer investing and pouring into the lives of these kids. Like, like, like there is nothing that, that, that is individual, though our society tells us your sin is just between you and God. It's, that's not a reality. That's a Western thought. All of our sin has implications to it that affect this family here and online that call Jesus either home, but it affects the church. Number four, Grow up in love as the older brother. If there's something that you think that you're doing in your life that is earning you extra favor with God or love or acceptance, that's more of an older brother mentality is that I'm keeping all the rules. What happens is you actually start to get weird when you believe in in, in a, uh, I, I hate using this word, but religion that preaches of Christianity that you are only saved by grace. And then what you do is live as though it is actually your standards and your principles that is making you right before God. I like what Paul Tripp says. He says this, it's not your failures or your flaws, your weaknesses you should be scared of. It's your strengths. Because those typically be, are the things that drive you away from your dependence and need for grace and for the cross of Christ. Your failures are the thing that actually expose you that you need them. And they're the good thing. And so typically people are like, I'm not going to step into community. I'm not going to do this. I don't know enough. Instead of saying like, that's the very reason you should step into community. That's the reason that, that, that you should walk forward is that you're not relying and resting upon your strengths. You actually are in the position to go, I need God's grace. 
the younger brother in, in our culture as well in the Pacific Northwest. This is the person that was like, I'm going to break all the rules to, 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 to show how free I am and find some satisfaction. This is how, I, when, when you hold alcohol in your hand, is it gift or God? Is it something that you're trying to find to give you satisfaction and meaning, or is it just a gift? The younger brother is the one that's, that, that's saying, I'm going to break the rules. I, I, I'm, I'm going to walk in this. I'm going to walk in sexual immorality. I'm going to do all this because in the end, Christ is not satisfying enough, so I need to find something else. Both of these things, here's the problem. If you talk to the older brother and the younger brother, oftentimes what they think you need to do is like somehow a pendulum swing in the other direction. Actually, what both need to do is find the, the, their all-satisfying hope in Christ. The older brother needs to see that Christ has fulfilled everything for them. His work is finished just like he said. Take God at his word. The younger brother needs to see there's nothing you're doing in this world and pursuing that's actually ever going to satisfy you outside of Christ. Christ is the answer. Looking there. Next, live outwardly. Those, those that understand God's love aren't showing up to say, what do I get, but how do I give? But the other thing is, there's many Christians that have no involvement with any sort of non-Christians in their life, though if we do look to the life of Christ, he was a friend of sinners. If we look to study Paul's writing, we understand in 1 Corinthians 9 and 14, Paul is constantly doing things thinking about the non-Christian. As Christians that are growing up in love, we need to be people that are growing out and in relationships with other people. And finally, I want to be sensitive here, but we need to grow up in a way from a prosperity gospel, which, is, which is, runs rampant in the U.S. Here's what I mean. That right now, if there's something tragic or horrific going on in your life, if your understanding is, or if your response is, I'm angry at God, let me ask why. When, when bad things happen, we go, how could you? It's typically our response to that is saying, I've done this, and I've been doing this, and I've been reading my Bible, and I've been doing all these things. How could you possibly let my life fall apart like this? We see this in, I believe it's Judges 19 or 20, but we actually see this horrific story of this Levite who has a concubine who, who, who gets sexually assaulted, so much so that she dies. And then so a, a war breaks out, and what, what happens is this group of people goes to war against the Benjamites, and, and, and they, are, they are like, they're savage warriors. And God says, go to war against them. And what happens is they get their, their fannies whooped, and then they come back and they're literally crying. They're like, what happened? You told us to go out. God never said, I promise you victory. So they're, they're, they're crying, they're bringing their pleas before God, and then he's like, go out again. What happens? They go out, they get whooped again. And then, and then they come back and they're crying to God again, and then he says, go out again. They go out and, give, and, and God gave them victory. Faithfulness to God doesn't always mean a life of ease or victory. Faithfulness from God is that I will never walk away from you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. In the darkest hour or moment or second of your life, I am here. Because Christ in the darkest hour of his life cried out for God. And he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that we as children of God could, would, would never be forsaken. A prosperity gospel is this. I've done this, I've done this, I've done this, so God, you should be responding like this. That's not growing up into the maturity of love. Uh, the, the, the maturity of God's love is you've provided this, you've given this, let that be enough for me. Not something you can give me outside of your love. We need to take God at his word. That it's actually going to be beneficial for us to grow up in his love. We need to first take him at his word that his love never ends. We need to then take him at his word that he's going to come back one day and he's going to move away our sinful nature and he's going to restore us fully into who we are in Christ. We need to take him at his word that it's actually going to be beneficial and good for us and for the whole body to grow up in love. But the next, look at verse 12 with me. 
For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, for even is as I have been fully known. What's also good for us to do, and we need to take God at His word, is right now we see in a mirror dimly. We see partially into who God is and, and partially have an understanding of the magnitude of the love that He has for us. I promise, saints, that it's going to be amazing when we experience the fullness of it one day. But right now, we get to see this stuff dimly. But what we actually see here is this, is now I know in part, then I shall know fully. What are you going to know fully? The fullness of God's love. And it's also, it also says this, look at what Paul says, even as I have been fully known. Did you know that right now, whether you know it or not, you have this deep desire to be fully known? You, you, you have a deep desire to, to be known. In a lot of ways, our, our community projects are us looking for counseling or therapy or reaching out to people saying, I want someone to know me. I want someone to know my problems. I want someone to know what's going on. I want someone to know me to the depths and the layers of what's going on in here. And here's the good news. Is that that you're longing for? Actually, God knows you. He knows every nook and cranny. He knows every motive, every thought, everything about you, even what you don't know. God knows you, and he fully knows you. And here's the thing. He fully loves all of you, not the comp- uh, just not compartments that you like or your areas of strength. That's not God's commitment. His commitment is to all of you and who you are in full. He knows you wholly, completely, and he's committed to that. Why? Because every part of you is hidden in Christ. In, in, in our marriages and in our re- relationships, we want to be known, but the reality is until we recognize that God knows us fully, then we're going to push on people to say, you need to know me more, you need to know me more. God knows you, all of you, and he loves all of you madly. Here's the other reality, is after we know that we're fully known by God, not just parts of us and the parts that we're proud of, but all of us, it actually helps us to be known by others. When we know that God sees all of us, knows all of us, and loves all of us, then we're actually supposed to move into community to be more known by others and to let others know us and to know other people. This is a good thing. Here's the reality. It'll be exhausting for you trying to live under a mask. It'll be exhausting for you to try to live under some imposter mentality. It'll be exhausting for you to not actually be who you are and and, and come forward with your weaknesses, your flaws, your sins, and your failures. You will get exhausted, I promise. I know, I've tried. Even when I applied for eldership at our old church, what, what, what became a reality in that interview and what the elders looked in and said is they said, your wife does not know you. Why? Because I was able to put on a front and I was able to see all these things and push attention in every other direction. But the reality is, is I was exhausted. I was getting exhausted because I was faking and pretending and not letting my wife know who I truly was. You're going to get exhausted. And here's the reality. Until you understand that God sees all, God knows all, God loves all, it's going to be really hard for you to move into community. But one of the ways that we step into community is, is, is to know that God fully knows us, God loves us, but God has clothed us. So you don't have to step in, into community and try to lead with your strengths. You step into community and recognize you've been clothed and covered in Christ. You know, in Genesis, they say this every week, when they sinned, they made garments and clothed themselves to try to deal with what was an internal problem. What happened next? We see this theme of clothing in Scripture. In Psalm 104, we see this. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O my Lord, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself as with light with a garment. Isaiah 61.10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God. Why? For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. In, in Luke 15, with the prodigal son, when, when, when he goes rogue and runs away and falls into sin, he, he comes back smelling gross, and he looks gross. He smelled like pigs. What does the father do? 
It says, bring me my best robe and put it on him. I'm going to bring him back into the city. I'm going to bring him back into the community. But he's going to go in, and, and he's, it's going to be clear that he is covered in my robe. He is covered in my righteousness. And for us, when we fall short, what we get the opportunity to do in community is we get to present those things, and our community gets to step in and say, yes, but remember this. This is who you are. You're clothed and you're covered, covered in the garments and the righteousness and the salvation of Christ. We, we, we can step in and be known because those are the clothes we wear. And as we step in and we expose ourselves, our community reminds us, yes, you have fallen short, but don't forget this. The Father has clothed you in the righteous garments of his Son, and that is who you are. We can take God at his word that it's actually going to be a good thing for us to know people, but also to be known. Last verse, verse 13. Now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Why would Paul say that? Faith, hope, and love. Here's, here's the reality. Is that love never ends. Love is going to step into eternity. The, the Godhead hasn't needed, Father, Son, and Spirit, haven't needed hope and haven't needed faith. We have. But when we step into the presence of God with Him for eternity one day, we're not going to need hope. We have God. We have His presence. We have the fullness of His love. So he's saying, these things are great, but ultimately love is the thing that carries. It, it, it is eternal. It is carried before the foundation of the world, and it's going to carry through to the end. These are the things that matter. And here's the other reason, is that you don't have faith without love. You don't have faith without love. God's love moved towards you to, to remove the veils, to open your heart, to receive the magnitude of his love. Without God's love moving toward you, stepping toward you and opening your eyes, you don't have faith. So that's why he would say that out of these things, they're good, but love is the very thing. How do we end today on, on, on love with, with the saints taking God at his word? I don't know a better way than to say this for application is that the, for saints to take God at his word, we need to live in his word. Our emotions tell us a lot, our culture tells us a lot, but we need to re, uh, be in his word. Th there's a study, you guys can, can Google it if you want, it's called the power of four. And they actually studied around 400,000 candidates for this to show that, that there wasn't much change when someone reads their Bible once a week. There wasn't much change when someone reads their Bible two or three times a week. Actually change started to happen when people read their Bible four or more times a week. When, when, when we're living in the Word of God and taking God at His Word, then this change starts to happen. Here, here's what happened. 57% less, uh, are, 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 all of these dropped. People were getting drunk 50% less. Sex outside of marriage was happening 68% less. Pornography was 61% lower odds. Gambling was 70% lower. And altogether, all of these habits, 57% lower. Here's what increased. Sharing faith with others by 228%. Discipling others by 231%. Memorizing scripture, 407%. The saints need to take God at his word, but in order to take God at his word, we need to live in his word, know his word, understand his word, and what his word says to us. And then as we understand this love of God, we as saints need to grow up into the love that God has for us because that's going to be the thing that impacts one another and impacts our society at large.